0: one man searches for intelligent conversation from Dedham, massachusetts the birthplace of modern democracy this is you don't have to yell with your host dan sally
1: welcome to season two episode three of you don't have to yell it is the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting the only boy Of nonpartisan political podcasting and thank you once again for making YDHTY the voice of the independent voter. Now if you're new here and you dig what you're here, be sure to subscribe and share with one friend, just one. And if you're old here and you still haven't subscribed, do the exact same thing. Now We are at the third in our four-part series on tech censorship, and in the first two episodes, we focused on the flaws in both the prevailing liberal and conservative arguments on the matter. And for today's episode, we're going straight into a subject both sides often avoid, that being what the law actually says. Hmm. So to help, I asked Denise Howell, who I have deputized as YDHTY's official legal analyst, She is an expert on technology law and an all-around great person, and she does a great job helping us sketch out the legal landscape. Now, in our conversation, we learn the origins of the much misunderstood Section 230, the details of the 100 plus pieces of tech regulation being proposed at the state level today, including one related to Disney, and how every one of them misses the things we really should be worried about in the tech industry. I will be back at the end, as always, with my final thoughts. The last time you and I spoke, I think you had work being done in your house, or your neighbor had work being done in the house, and you had a dog, and I had my kids in the house all screaming. My kids are away at sleepaway camp right now, so it is deathly quiet in the house. It's a little too quiet. However, Like my neighbor is lawn guy has had a way of showing up every time I record. So he may play a cameo role. Is there anything on your side we should be aware of prior to jumping into the subject? Yeah,
0: no, I think that the the lawn people have some sort of coconut telegraph that lets them know when everyone is trying to do a podcast and they go right there when that's happening. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So um, yeah, I think we can we can both rely on that. I, I have I have six different kinds of restru- construction happening uh, all behind me right now, and fortunately, I think they've all agreed to be quiet for the afternoon. So, and the dogs in uh, my bedroom, and my kid is studying. So, I think that uh, I think we should be in good shape. I hope
1: that's great. All right, fingers crossed. Mm. If not, <laughs> listener, you have been warned. So reason I want to talk to you is because this month we're talking a lot about the subject of tech regulation and tech censorship. Um, There are, uh, I think, a lot of misconceptions about the laws regulating tech companies. And I'm hoping you, as the official legal expert on the subject, are going to be able to clear away the fog. So the first thing I want to start off with, and probably the hottest topic, is on the way social media networks moderate content and is there under US law like what are they legally obligated to do in terms of content moderation
0: so that's a really good question um they there are a few things that come into play mm-hmm. one is something uh that's called section 230 of the communications decency act which was was uh, a law that um, attempted to get itself on the books in 1996, but was struck down for being unconstitutional. Uh, but most of that law was was stricken because it was very restrictive. It was called the Communications Decency Act. It was an attempt to sort of clean up the wild west of the internet, uh, and and was found being a law enacted by Congress. Uh, to be something that was improperly impinging on freedom of speech under the First Amendment. Uh, So most of the law completely got wiped off the books. What survives is what is called the safe harbor of Section 230. And it's a safe harbor because it gives some cover to internet service providers, uh, internet platforms, Um, there's a whole definition of who's covered by, uh, the statute, but when we think of people who are social media platforms, they, they definitely qualify for this protection. Um, and, and the goal of it was they wanted to, Congress wanted to make sure, because again, this was the Communications Decency Act. They wanted to make sure that these organizations, these companies, um, didn't have to take a completely hands-off approach in order to protect themselves and their operations. Congress affirmatively wanted them to step in and say, okay, we want this to be a fairly palatable place for people to gather and um, exchange ideas. We don't want it to be, you know, we want them to be encouraged to take steps to make things Non toxic to make them decent <laughs> under the Communications Decency Act, so they en- enacted a provision that said uh, that someone like Twitter or Facebook, etc., they're they're not a speaker; uh, they're not considered the publisher of the information on their platforms um, unless they entangle themselves uh, so much that they become a speaker if they get, start getting editorial then all their protection goes out the window. But if they're just providing a way for people to uh, exchange their own ideas and thoughts, pictures, cats, (laughs) whatever else people put on the internet, um, then the platform itself is not going to be held accountable, with some exceptions. Um, So um, as long as their users are not violating intellectual property, committing federal crimes, uh, actively fomenting terrorism, or engaged in sex trafficking, uh, the platforms are able to take a hands-off approach. And you can imagine how much more difficult it would be to operate a social media platform if, for example, people were to be able to come after you in court every time you thought someone defamed you. On something like Twitter, um, so uh, that that's the structure. Um, other than that, it's pretty much the wild west. And and you're doing this podcast at a really good time because what we've seen in the last couple of years, and I'm sure you've been talking about a lot on your show lately, is is people in Washington and people in state legislatures are not real thrilled with the fact that there's so much cover, uh, for internet companies to be able to say, Hey, we're not responsible. We can moderate how we like, Uh, these, these are our platforms and we are private businesses and, uh, we think it's important to create a certain environment for our users. And, and we're going to make the calls on that. Uh, There are lots of people who have not been agreeing with those calls and the way they are made uh, necessarily in the last several years vocally. Um, So what we're seeing as fallout of that is, for example, this year, at least 38 state legislatures have introduced over 100 big tech regulation bills in their 2021 sessions because we've had some things introduced in Washington that have sort of sat there and not get in, not gotten themselves enacted.
1: Now the courts have already taken this opinion that the ability to moderate content or the ability to to declare certain content uh, you know certain content banned on the internet, for lack of a better phrasing, sounds like the courts have already determined that that can't be done. What are these state laws saying that's any different?
0: So we've had so as I said, you know. Um, We've got over 100 attempts that the states are making. Notably, though, uh, things that have, have actually gone through the legislative process. Utah this year uh, tried to pass a bill, It uh, did pass a bill that would have um, prevented social media companies from regulating content, that it would have taken the content moderation piece out altogether. Uh, Utah's governor stepped in and vetoed that one. So that one's off the table. Florida did the same thing with a few twists, um, and Governor DeSantis in Florida signed that one into law. However, it was challenged in federal court as unconstitutional on a number of grounds, and it was thrown out as unconstitutional. Uh, interestingly enough, there was a Disney carve-out in that law. <laughs> so that, uh, yes.
1: <laughs> so fitting.
0: <laughs> it's... Florida. Thank you, Florida. So, so that Disney, which has its own social media platforms, uh, would, would not have been impacted, would have been allowed to continue moderating to its heart's content. That was part of the reason It it was sort of a tangential reason, but it was brought up by the court that, um, that tossed out the Florida law, but it was vague. It was, um, discriminatory and it unduly regulated speech under the first amendment because it, impacted the way that these companies could make calls on what was going to be okay and what was not going to be okay on their sites. And uh, commercial entities actually have speech rights under the First Amendment as well. They're not as uh, protected as individuals' rights, but they are there and they are protected.
1: Yeah. And so first off, Disney, absolutely glorious. Thank you, (laughs) Florida state government.
0: Oh, and there's one more state in the mix that one to next one to watch is Texas, uh, Texas. Now this one, you, you gotta kind of wring your hands and, and go, ah, Texas. I mean, first of all, it knows what happened in Florida. So, so it can't be, uh, too blind to the constitutional issues with trying to do this. But when you read through the text of the law, You can see why the lawmakers are attempting to forge ahead anyway, because this looks like something that would be super popular with any politician's political constituents. Texas wants a customer service phone number regarding moderation, so that if you've had a uh, post taken down, uh, you have someone to call (laughs) and talk that through. Uh, It wants an appeals process, so that you know you're. Something gets reviewed and your post might get reinstated. It wants provision of precise reasoning uh, as to each content moderation decision. Uh, So you can, I mean, who wouldn't want that? All those things if their post had been pulled down. So on the one hand, it sounds great, right? On the other, there are these constitutional issues and also imagine implementing uh, such a strategy. Um, social media companies can barely moderate their sites as it is.
1: I mean, who would, like you said, who wouldn't like that? I'm surprised they didn't <laughs> include like a fruit basket on your birthday provision into that law too, because really, why not? Precisely. At this point. <laughs> um, so is this, do you think the state legislatures are actually thinking we're going to get something done? Or is this political theater? Or is this a way to make things hard for the tech companies so they think twice about censoring future voices or kind of all of the above or a mix of those?
0: Um, part of it's impatience because, as mentioned, uh, the uh, our elected Washington, D.C. representatives have taken a few stabs at this and not get gotten anything past. And what tends to happen is if it's a popular issue that people are talking about a lot, Hand-wringing is going on, and Washington's not getting there. This happened in the privacy arena, which is what you and I talked about the last time I was on your show. Um, There is no federal privacy law. There's some communication privacy laws, uh, but the only federal privacy law that we have is sort of what's been interpreted by the courts to be inherent in the Constitution. So what that means is we have this patchwork of state privacy laws that have been coming out rapid fire uh, for a while now. Um, and if you're a company trying to do business in the United States and comply with all possible laws where your customers are, it's it's a real handful. Um, and uh, we're sort of looking at a similar situation developing it as the state's attempt to broach the content moderation question, which, you know, I'm not uh, – I don't know if political theater is what's going on here, but when you consider what's gone into, for example, uh, the Texas bill, how it, you know, contains things that if you were to have a debate about that and try and play devil's advocate with someone, there's no one who would tell you, you know, from a customer centric standpoint that these are bad things, (laughs) (laughs) you know, goodness knows we'd all love to have uh, for any problem with a tech company, a customer service number to call and have our problem addressed. They are notoriously hard to reach, um, it, to, to such an extent that uh, there's been a rash of people's Facebook accounts getting hacked recently. Uh, I, the speculation is that uh, it's so valuable to have somebody's, you know, Facebook account and then be able to populate it with misinformation and sway public, you know, that you can hire yourself out to whoever is, you know, the latest bot farm or what have you. And, and if you have these dummy slash zombie accounts, then they're, they can be quite valuable. So there's been a huge uptick in in attempts and and successful attempts to hack people's accounts. And people are so frustrated with trying to get through to facebook to address this problem there there really is no way to do it that someone figured out this is the top suggested uh remedy on reddit for this issue that you actually go out and buy a 300 hundred dollar pair of oculus vr goggles sold by facebook facebook bought oculus uh, <laughs> and that once you have a product that the company has supplied you with, then you have a customer service number. And if uh, somehow, if you beg, plead, cajole, right, you could maybe get your account reinstated. Um, others on Reddit have said, hey, you know, that's stopped working now that they're wise to us. Oh. <laughs> so.
1: so so enough people did this. Yes. Where they were like, no, we can't do this.
0: Right. So, I mean, I, I suppose one message to tech companies, if they want to avoid having scattershot regulation coming at them from both the federal and state level is tend to your customers, <laughs> you know, make people happier with their experience so that they don't feel they don't need their legislatures to add this and a birthday fruit basket into a piece of arguably, probably unconstitutional legislation just to get your vote.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And there are actually two things I was thinking. First off, If I was Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg and this law for the toll-free customer complaint line passed, I'd open it up, but I'd staff it with one person, (laughs) right? Because there's, I mean, there's crappy customer service all over the place. Like what's one more and what are you going to do? Like you can't ask for your money I typically
0: spend six and a half hours on the phone with Delta just to add a pet in cabin to my flights. So, Really? Yeah, that's what it takes these days. Yeah, you just leave your phone, you know, somewhere. But at least there's a line, like you're saying.
1: Yeah, absolutely. At least there's somebody I can call. It's sort of like the wailing wall, you know. I can sort of put my little message in there and then, you know, feel like I did my part. Right. Um, the second part of that, though, and I think something legitimate and something I hadn't thought about, is especially with Facebook, where I don't want to stereotype, but when you look at the 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 age of the user base. And you look at the fact like my dad's on Facebook, my, my, uh, you know, my, my aunts on Facebook, they're not people who grew up with the internet and probably are the people, statistically speaking, who are the most prone to being hacked. So, so I could see where there might be a, a need for something like that.
0: But, but again, for how long? Cause I think you make a good point. Yeah. I feel like say Facebook's only lifeline to, uh, commercial viability these days is the fact that it bought Instagram, the fact that it bought WhatsApp and people use that. And, uh, you know, perhaps other things that that are less public and more sort of black ops secret projects they're working on related to AI and uh, predictive things based on your data, etc. Um, so, you know, I'm sure that they know that Your dad and my uncle and, you know, their older user base on what we think of as Facebook is not going to carry them very far. There was a line I heard Steve Jobs say once, which was uh, he was asked at a conference, uh, what was the biggest challenge you faced when you first started Apple Computer? And his response was people couldn't type. But we knew eventually death would take care of that.
1: <laughs> that's a very Steve Jobs thing to say, yes. too. You know,
0: and and I feel like Facebook is you know the traditional Facebook that we think of, you know, the blue newsfeed. That's squarely in the crosshairs of, of death taking it out.
1: Oh, without a doubt. I mean, yeah. my my son has a Facebook profile just to have one, and has blocked me on Instagram. <laughs> and yeah, to your point, the younger generation is not on there. I right. I want to jump. I I definitely want to get back to antitrust, but I want to totally like ring the last drop out of this out of this discussion on free speech because you know the 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 argument out there, the argument that that social media companies make is, of course, they are a private business; they can decide what's set on the platform and what isn't. Are there any legal weaknesses? In that argument,
0: nope, none, <laughs> and I think people don't really understand that fully. Yeah, um, that's there, a very
1: decisive no. By the yeah, way, yeah, there
0: there are zero yeah. legal weaknesses yep. in that argument, and that's because it goes back to how the First Amendment works, mm-hmm. and the fact that and and you know you and I were talking before that that perhaps people need to have a reminder of what exactly the First Amendment says mm-hmm. about speech, and and once you remember the actual language, then you understand better why people think about platforms Mm -hmm. as having some sort of First Amendment relationship. But unless the government comes in like it did with the Communications Decency Act that we talked about Mm -hmm. before, unless the government is taking some action that says, no, you can't do that, then the First Amendment just doesn't come into play. And here's what the First Amendment says. Congress, i.e. the government, shall make no law, dot, 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 abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. So it it's all about every bit of First Amendment jurisprudence goes back to whether or not there's a government actor involved. And if there isn't, no need to talk about the First Amendment.
1: Do you know why we can't have nice things in America? Or better put, why we can't have open and civil debate in a democracy that requires it it's because polarization is a feature not a bug in the american political system we decide elections based on the person who can win the most votes not the one who can win the majority meaning i'm better off appealing to a small group of hardened partisans by demonizing the other side and dividing than i am at finding consensus and It's the reason we only have two parties in this country. It's the reason the majority of Americans choose not to affiliate with either of them. And it's the reason you listen to YDHTY. And we need to change this if we're going to continue to be a functioning democracy. And there are two ways you can help. First, if you like what you hear, and I think you do since you made it to this break, share this with one friend just one friend this show grows by word of mouth and we need more people like you in the conversation second if you want to take action in your state visit rankthevote.us Ranked choice voting is by far the easiest and most practical way to bring america to a consensus driven system of elections and rank the vote is dedicated to getting ranked choice voting implemented in each and every state in the union I hope you'll join me in the fight. Now, back to the episode. All right. So the government is not moderating content. Therefore, Twitter and Facebook and everybody else can do whatever they want. Correct.
0: Um, oh, but before we leave that, can I, can, yeah, can, we, can I maybe just talk for a minute why, about why people think that the First Amendment has any sort of relationship to a social media platform?
1: I would love that. I would yeah. absolutely love that. <laughs> <And> <laughs> there, I think people need to know this.
0: Yeah. There's no there's no legal weakness in your argument that, that uh, platforms can do what they want, but there are political weaknesses. There are – there's angst. There's public angst. <laughs> First of all, as we were just discussing, people misunderstand the First Amendment. They think the First Amendment applies to everybody and not the government, <laughs> okay? And it doesn't. Um, there are some exceptions. Uh, employers in California, for example, can can only regulate the speech of their employees um, so far because of laws that have been enacted here, despite the fact they're not the government. Uh, but, but as an overarching principle, it's the government, and people don't understand that. Uh, they also – so, you know, they think of what goes on on the internet as speech, and it is. But there's no problem with moderating that speech unless you're the government. That's what they don't um, take to heart. Um, they, <laughs> we've already talked about how, how people re- can resent these platforms because they might wind up having problems with them one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether their own speech is taken down or their account has been hacked or what have you, it's hard to get responses from these platforms. Um, it's hard to get any kind of redress and, and pretty much the platforms you know, wash their hands of it. Uh, the other thing people resent is, is how the platforms have leveraged this free business model and gathered lots of data and are doing things behind the scenes with their data, trying to decide how best to monetize all this incredible resource that they have. So there's, there's a lot of resentment there uh they resent how huge these companies are they hear about some, how some of them treat their employees or they personally experience that treatment mm-hmm. and they don't like it uh they resent how these companies make it hard to uh if you're someone who's going to use their their great platform and their huge megaphone to spread the word about your cause or your business or what have you uh They make that hard. They take their cut, right? Their fees or various other hurdles that you have to jump through. Uh, You know, everybody's grumpy about the tech companies because of these things. The Democrats don't like them. There was just a Politico poll uh, finding that 23% of people who voted for Biden strongly approved of regulating tech companies. 28% of Trump voters felt that way. And, and 30% of Biden voters uh, want tech regulation, big tech regulation, to be a top priority. So, so pe- there's this tension between what people want the law to be and what the law is.
1: You know, you'd mentioned this earlier, and I want to I jump into this, which is the, the antitrust argument that's out there. Um, because, you know, what I found interesting about this market specifically is that it's, it is technically an open market. So it is technically fairly simple for anyone to create their own social network um, the The issue that I see is these businesses really require a certain scale to be viable. So Facebook needs a certain number of users to be a viable business. Twitter needs a certain number of users Airbnb go on you know the examples go on and on and i i don't in a lot of ways, I don't see that scale lending itself to more than a few players Um, and then adding to that their tendency. And you mentioned this earlier to acquire potential upstarts. And what I'm wondering is, is the definition of monopoly outdated?
0: I I think Congress would say that um, the definition of monopoly is outdated or, or that our, uh, Antitrust laws in general are. Monopoly definition and monopoly power are just part of the whole patchwork of our antitrust laws that, that attack various forms of competition, various forms of pricing, competitive, predatory pricing measures, um, things that – you can think of antitrust as just things that the government has decided are – Okay, checks on the free market economy because they're unfair, in one way or another. If you break it down to its its very basic policy reason for existence, so you remember the um, committee, the House Subcommittee on Antitrust, that met for months during lockdown, during COVID lockdown via Zoom, with people like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, and had labored conversations with them about their company policies, et cetera. That same committee in June, it was a 16-month investigation they conducted of Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. So there was not to be just spinning their wheels. They actually did something with that investigation. And in June of this year, uh, have put forward five proposed antitrust bills. Um, so those are on the table now and are going to get marked up and possibly amended and hopefully ultimately, well, we'll see if they get any of or all of them through. I can give you a real quick summary of what they are, but, but back to your initial question, do, do things need to be reexamined? Does our whole antitrust infrastructure definitions approach, do they need to be reexamined and modernized? That's what Congress is saying. Congress has answered that question yes by introducing these five bills. Um, so I can t- I can tell you briefly uh, what they are. Uh, ones One's the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. It's aimed mostly at competition. It involves fines if it's violated, the kinds of fines. Uh, that you see under your, the EU's GDPR, where if you're found to have violated this, it's going to take a hunk of your revenue to, um, penalize you. There's the Platform Competition and Opportunity Act. Uh, that's about mergers primarily. Uh, there's the Ending Platform Monopolies Act, which really seems to, con- uh, concern itself mo- most with conflicts of interest, um, business decisions that, that don't seem, uh, fair because somebody's in bed with somebody else, et cetera. Um, somebody has control that they shouldn't have or that seems unfair. Uh, there's one called the Augmenting Compatibility and Competition by Enabling Service Switching, which is the most awkwardly named act, but I think they were going for the acronym, which is ACCESS.
1: Oh, my God.
0: And this one, this one, I think of, you know, if I'm going to ballpark the success of these five acts, this one I'm going to call the front runner in in having success. It deals with lock-in and network effects. It deals with that problem where you no longer like Facebook as a platform. You want to go somewhere else. But all your friends and family are there and it's hard to move and you could go somewhere else, but they're not going to follow you. Uh, the data between those two platforms aren't going to interoperate. And so you find yourself sort of stuck in this place that you no longer find desirable.
1: Yeah, I, you know? I love the data portability issue, though, because the one thing I do think is, and this is something that just kind of as you were talking, is, you know, I've got baby pictures on Facebook that I don't think exist anywhere else. Like they might exist on some old phone I've since turned in, but they don't exist anywhere else. And if Facebook does something objectionable or something morally reprehensible that I can't stand for, I have a choice between basically lighting my family album on fire or, sticking with an organization that I'm really not a big fan of. And so I, I do, I, I'm super interested in that one.
0: I'll, I'll, I'll tell you though, Facebook over the years has been under the microscope on this kind of issue um, a lot. And, and they have had to, in response to pressure uh, from the FTC and others, they have had to implement ways that it's not impossible to get, you know, you can take your stuff out of Facebook and save it locally for sure. But can you easily say, "I'm going to start using this service?" Hey, Facebook, all that data that you have, please import it over to this other service, and I'm going to use them now that That's much harder and And the crux of this access act is um, to establish sort of trusted third party intermediary data receptacles, you know, a whole new business model, right. Mm-hmm. That uh, you would use to sort of, it would be sort of the on and off switch for your data, put it here, then put it over here, and and you would have a central trusted source where that would be, and it wouldn't be any one private commercial social media platform.
1: That is super interesting. Mm Mm-hmm that is really interesting. And that kind of get, that actually gets back to our original conversation, which is who owns your data. Right. Like, right. I've got, you know, I've got one last question for you. And this is, this is kind of a little, uh, this is getting a little out there. This is a little theoretical. Um, but you know, one of the things that I notice now more than ever is that government's ability to move at the speed of technology is, is, is lagging, you know, Mm -hmm. or and, and that gap keeps increasing with the pace of innovation. Do do, do we have the, the legal mechanisms in place to really effectively regulate technology? Because I almost feel like we're going to get to the point where by the time you're ready to regulate something, by the time a law is passed, whatever you're regulating is obsolete. and Now you've got something new that you have to look out for.
0: Right. So one thing we've seen in the past few administrations, um, quite a bit is the use of the executive order, which is much faster than um, legislation getting passed, getting approved and vetted and finally passed. And uh, in early July, Joe Biden actually signed an executive order aimed at reducing big tech mergers and increasing competition. So it even if these five antitrust bills take their usual sort of slow and torturous course, this executive order has already been enacted Um, it beefs up the FTC and the Justice Department's authority to unwind past bad mergers, which I actually think is kind of funny because (laughs) they specifically uh, in the executive order and the White House press release around it talk about, oh, there have been mergers that have happened in prior administrations that maybe uh, our Justice Department or FTC would take issue with now and and maybe that should be re-examined. And so the two biggest we've already talked about WhatsApp and uh Instagram acquired by Facebook. Those happened Instagram in 2012 and WhatsApp in 2014, both under the final Obama four years. So Biden was right in there. <laughs> when, I know. I know when it- those mergers happened. But that's okay. We can, you know, there's no no reason not to give the FTC and the Justice Department room to look at those and others. Uh, There's heavy, heavy attention in the executive order on, and you were just hitting on this, on free services that accumulate and leverage user data. It goes after ISPs for hidden speed caps and fees, you know, when they throttle you because you've hit a certain cap. Um, It directs the FCC to restore net neutrality, which is a ping pong that we've seen uh, go back and forth, back and forth for gosh, I don't even want to know how long now. What else does it do? It directs the FTC to create new rules meant to uh, protect consumer privacy and regulate the accumulation of extraordinary amounts of sensitive personal information, which is, I I kind of look at that kind of language like the Texas customer service (laughs) language, right? I mean, what consumer doesn't want the accumulation of extraordinary amounts of sensitive personal information regulated and paid attention to. It's kind of loaded language, but
1: yeah, I mean, it it seems like this, and this is something we talked about in in an earlier episode on the subject, but it, it does seem as if, you know, certainly the answer is legislation or is the, is the legislative process fast enough is, is a clear no, but It sounds like the government has enough capacity to give these companies a hard time that their incentives are either A, to self-regulate or B, to come to the table and really craft or help craft regulation that's going to work for their business and is going to address the mobs wielding torches and pitchforks and screaming their names.
0: Yeah, you've hit the nail right on the head. I mean, people have been warning technology companies for literally years, if not decades, that they need to address these issues or they will find themselves having to battle legislation and regulation that they never wanted to see.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did... Remember, share it with just one person you think would dig it and be sure to subscribe if you have not already. Now, if you'd like to dig more into Denise's stuff, you can find her at denisehowell.info. And she also recommended a whole bunch of resources on the subject of tech regulation and section 230. You can find in the show notes on ydhty.com under the episodes link. Now, this conversation reaffirms something we've heard in the last two episodes and that is that there should be a concern about a small number of large tech companies getting too strong and whether it's through acquisition or freezing our data in their platforms a small number of large players have figured out a way to get near monopolistic power without actually breaking the current set of antitrust laws and while the current legislation coming out of various states is misguided, it might also serve to bring these companies to the table and be open to meaningful changes that don't involve customer service lines and special provisions for Disney. We shall see. As always, music courtesy of Norway's finest tack, YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory. Of the big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.